Last week, we looked at the foundational commandment for the rest of the Ten Commandments. You know, the, the first commandment lays the foundation for all of the Ten Commandments. The most important thing is to love and worship the Lord God alone. He has no rival. He has no equal, as we just sang. But the second half of the Ten Commandments focuses a little more on our relationships with other people. And so last week's commandment, that children should honor their parents, really lays a foundation for all of the other commandments because honor is about recognizing the significance of someone. And when you honor people through respect, through obedience, through uh, just selflessly serving them and helping them, there's so many ways that we can be grateful, generous, forgiving to other people. All of those are ways that we can show honor. And, and even though that commandment from last week specifically is about children honoring their parents, we know from elsewhere in the Bible that it goes both ways and, and that really we should all honor one another in Christ Jesus. And if we can be those kinds of people, we can be loving and respectful and generous and grateful and, and kind to one another, we can really begin to transform the rest of society, one home and one person at a time. Well, today we're going to look at the Sixth Commandment. And you don't even have to turn there because it's pretty easy. You shall not murder. That's it. Exodus 20:13. You shall not murder. Now, I find it interesting to consider the order in which God gives us these commands. I mean, if last week's commandment was for children, would this week's commandment maybe be for parents? I, I, I don't know. There are days, right? I mean, I'm just saying that maybe, maybe there's a reason that this comes, this comes next. But in all seriousness, you probably look at this command and you think, okay, finally an easy one. I've got this one in the bag. I've never killed anybody. Don't plan on killing anybody. Check that one off. Move on. Not so fast. Now, on the surface, this command is pretty straightforward, right? Don't commit murder. Don't willfully take someone else's life. And this command uses a very specific word. That word for murder is the Hebrew word ratzak, which always refers to the willful, intentional taking of another person's life, what we would say is murder. Now, there are a lot of other Hebrew words that could be used to, to say that somebody had been killed or that you're going to slay, uh, whether that's accidentally, in battle, or in self-defense. That's not the word that's used here. So this commandment is not talking about that. It's talking about willful murder. And I could preach a whole sermon this morning about taking human life, and that definitely has become a, a more complex and, and relevant issue in our society today. I could talk about the societal and spiritual issues that play behind mass shootings. I believe that the breakdown of the family plays a key role in the kind of violence that we're seeing. And, and I read a statistic that said that all but one of these mass shooters in recent history, all but one of them came from fatherless homes. There's a connection there. I could talk about physician-assisted suicide. I, I could preach about abortion. And this command has at its core the sanctity of human life. But instead, what I want to focus on this morning is a different aspect of this command. One that doesn't let us off the hook as easily as we might think. Because whether you realize it or not, you've probably committed murder. You've broken this command. Now, you've probably kept the, the letter of this law. 
You've not physically taken another person's life. But Jesus takes us to the spirit of the law. Jesus takes us to the heart of the matter. He points out that while we may not have blood on our hands, we may just have murder in our hearts. So I want us to look at what Jesus has to say about this command in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Now, as we talked about last week, no family is perfect. There's not a perfect spouse, perfect parent, child, sibling in this room. And when we live long enough with somebody under the same roof, we're going to inevitably make them mad at us, right? We're going to get frustrated. We're going to lose our temper. We're going to get on each other's nerves. I mean, these are going to happen. What Jesus says is that it's how we handle those moments that matter. It's how we handle those moments that are critical to whether we're going to be guilty of crushing someone's spirit or building up their character. Whether we use our words, our words to kill or we use our words to heal. See, when we let anger build up inside to the point that it turns into resentment, hatred, bitterness, we've already lost control. We've already committed this sin. We need to understand what kind of anger Jesus is talking about here, though. Because anger, sort of like love, when we say anger and angry, it can mean a whole lot of different things. There's a lot of reasons for people to get angry. So let's talk for just a few minutes about what some of the different causes are. Why am I angry? Well, one is the physical threat of harm. The threat of physical harm. In other words, this is our, our inbuilt fight-or-flight mechanism. You know, you, you perceive that your physical safety is being threatened. And that's a, that's a natural response. That's why you get mad if you stump your toe. Or you hit your thumb with the hammer. It doesn't just hurt, it makes you angry. You burn your finger on a hot stove, you get mad. We have a similar reaction when our emotional safety gets threatened. You know, maybe you're embarrassed. You fell at a task or someone says something unkind. And of course, we should learn to temper our temper when it comes to those kinds of perceived emotional threats. And we'll talk about that when we talk about the third aspect of anger, the third cause of anger. So there's the threat of physical harm. The second is righteous indignation. Righteous indignation. This is part of the image of God at work within us. God has given us a, a, a hatred for sin, for injustice and cruelty. And as Christians, anything that goes against God, anything that smears His good name should make us angry. Whenever we see someone or something threaten the safety and well-being of another person should make you mad. That kind of anger really is coming from a heart of love. You're angry precisely because you care. It should stir something within you. Or if, if not, then you're neglectful, you're ambivalent. Those aren't good. 
So there's a righteous indignation that really is a part of our God-givenness. But the third is personal satisfaction. And this kind of flows, again, as I said, from that first cause of anger. You feel emotionally threatened. You know, we perceive that our personal needs aren't being met. Maybe your feelings of well-being, security, acceptance, whatever, is, is you perceive that those are being neglected, and so you feel hurt, stressed, frustrated. You feel angry. Now, we can be angry at any of these three reasons without committing sin. There's nothing inherently wrong with anger. Anger is a God-given emotion. Righteous indignation, as I said, it flows from the image of God within everyone. Jesus got angry on a number of occasions. Anger can actually be a positive force if it motivates you to do something about it. If it causes you to change your action or to try to reach out to someone else and help them to change their actions so that they will stop hurting themselves or others. And that way, anger can be a good thing. But anger is more often used in a negative way. See, when our anger is directed not at a situation, not at an action, when it's directed at a person, then anger can become one of the most destructive human emotions. We end up hurting other people. In anger, we can crush our children's spirits. We can dash someone's hopes to the ground. We can do serious damage to our spouse's sense of identity or their feeling of security. We can ruin someone's trust in us. In anger, we can kill someone's reputation and smear their character. As Ben said, words can indeed hurt us in far deeper and longer-lasting ways than sticks and stones ever could. Words can kill. And that's why we have to be careful to question our anger, to discern whether what I'm feeling is justified or not, and, and whether I'm dealing with it in a positive way or a negative way. See, righteous anger will come from an others-centered loving heart. But destructive anger comes from a self-centered, loathing heart. You're angry because you have been inconvenienced, because you've been embarrassed. You have lost your patience. You feel taken advantage of. When it's destructive anger, your thoughts aren't really for the other person and what their actions might do to them. You're only thinking about how they affect you. Do you see the difference there? And whether it is a positive or a negative, a righteous or a destructive form of anger. Paul helps us to judge where our anger is coming from. Is it coming from a place of sinful brokenness or is it coming from a place of Christ-like righteousness? And he talks about this in Philippians chapter 2. In verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility... Consider others as better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he goes into this beautiful poem where he talks about how Jesus laid aside his rights as God and limited himself. He became a slave, took on human form, and he died on the cross For us, that's the kind of attitude Paul says we should have toward other people. And remember, Jesus did all of that 
For who? His enemies. For us. Rebellious sinners. He didn't do it for good guys. He did it for us. And then Paul says in verse 14, Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. So when you're feeling angry at someone, ask yourself, is this anger coming from a place of selfishness, vanity, ambition? Am I angry because I've been embarrassed? Am I being humble in my anger? Or am I considering myself better than the person I'm mad at? Is this anger consistent with the attitude of Christ? Would God say I'm blameless and pure in my anger, or am I guilty of arguing and complaining in my anger? Take the time to evaluate why you feel the way you do and how you're handling it. Because whenever we speak or act out of selfish, vain anger, whenever we're complaining and arguing with the spirit of superiority and a blind eye to our own faults, then we're dangerously close to being guilty of committing this sixth commandment. We may not be taking someone's physical life, but we can rob them of their spiritual, emotional, and relational vitality. We're doing the opposite of honoring them and helping them to flourish. Instead, we use our words, our attitudes, and our actions to tear them down so we can build ourselves up, to make ourselves feel better, to justify our actions or to cover up our own faults and failings. But you know what? It doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to resign ourselves to blowing our top. You know, I mean, I'm a redhead. Redheads are famous for being angry, right? We don't have to just use that as an excuse. You don't have to just say, well, that's just the way I am. I just, I just have a, a short fuse. Ephesians 4, 26-27 says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. See, I can be angry. And sometimes, sometimes I should be angry. Maybe there are times that I should be more angry than I am. But I have to deal with my anger so that it doesn't lead me to sin. Because when I fail to deal with anger in a spirit-led, God-honoring way, I'm giving Satan the chance to use me to do harm to other people. And, and, and even worse, to do harm to the cause of Christ. See, there, there are healthy and unhealthy ways to deal with our anger. An unhealthy way to deal with anger is just to repress it. Repressed anger. Now, on the surface, you may think, well, that's the mature thing to do, right? But it's unhealthy because repressed anger acts like a pressure cooker. It keeps building and building and building until you're like that angry bird, that bomb angry bird, right? It just builds and builds and builds until, boom, you blow up. And you blow up at anyone and everyone around you, whether or not they're even the cause of your anger. Repressed anger is never good. There's a second kind of anger that's sort of similar. Suppressed anger. Now, suppressed anger can be positive or negative. Now, if you're just bottling up your emotions, it's really not all that different than repressing anger. It's just a form of denial that can end up poisoning your spirit and your relationship with other people. It can lead to bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness. So that's a negative way to suppress your anger. But we can positively suppress the expression of our anger 
until we've had the time to evaluate why we're upset and consider what's a healthy way to express it. That kind of is the old count to ten method. You know, you know what I'm talking about? That's how you're angry, just, you know, bite your knuckle and count to ten, right? It's just, it's taking a pause, a time out to say, all right, I'm upset, I'm angry, I need to walk away, I need to think about this. Why am I angry? Is it justified? And what am I going to do about it? Now, the Old Testament gives us a great example of this. The prophet Nehemiah, he was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, right? And in the process of this, he became aware of an injustice. The wealthy citizens of Jerusalem were taking advantage of and charging interest to the poor citizens of Jerusalem just to pad their own pockets. And Nehemiah was filled with righteous indignation at this injustice. So his motives were pure. His motives were pure. But he still had to make sure that his expression of anger was righteous. It's not just enough to have righteous indignation as your motive, but is your anger righteous in its expression as well? It has to be both. So in Nehemiah chapter 5, we read this. Nehemiah said, When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. But look what he did next. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, You are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. So see, Nehemiah didn't just jump to conclusions. He didn't take to Facebook to start ranting. Before acting on his feelings, Nehemiah stopped to consider the situation. Am I justified in my anger? Do I have all the facts? What would be an appropriate way to approach this situation? And only after that kind of careful consideration did he hold the meeting and confront the nobles publicly. You know, yeah, it can feel good to give somebody a verbal tongue lashing. You know, to give them what they've got coming to them. But that feeling of justification is fleeting. And it leaves long-lasting effects. I mean, what good is it to get something off your chest if it leaves people lying around bleeding at the verbal, you know, cutting remarks that you've given them? Because Nehemiah thought through the proper response to his anger, the wealthy citizens heard him, responded to him, and they did what he wanted. He handled it the right way, and he got the results that he wanted. So rather than repress our anger, we need to recognize our anger. We need to consider how to express it in positive, constructive ways. And the first thing we need to do before we express it is we need to confess it. Confessed anger means that we own up to it. We share our feelings without blaming others. You make me so angry is not a confession. That's an accusation. Okay, there's a difference. Confession says, I'm angry about what has happened. Confession says, I'm feeling hurt right now by what you've said. See, accusing someone only inflames the situation. Throwing blame around does no good. But before we even confess our anger to other people, we need to confess it first and foremost to God. And that is a way that we can appropriately express our anger in prayer to God. You're not going to hurt His feelings. He can take it. Share with God in prayer how you honestly feel. And, and you know what I've discovered? Many times that simple prayer of confession is all you need to deal with your anger. 
You know, there have been times I've been angry about a situation or angry about someone and I just stopped and I just fell to my knees and I prayed and I talked to God about it. And when I got up, I was good. I felt better. And that's all I needed to do with that anger. Other times, God will help you to get a grip on your feelings and He will help you develop a wise and grace-filled plan to express your anger in a way that is healing, not wounding. Ephesians 4.29, Paul says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So if our anger comes from a loving, spirit-filled heart, you're going to want to express that anger in a way that reflects the situation and rectifies it, makes it better. Not just something that's going to make you feel better, but something that's actually going to make the situation better. So I want to conclude this morning with four ways that we can do just that. Four ways we can express our anger so that it builds others up, not tears them down, so that it brings God's kingdom to come and His will to be done. And the first thing is to focus on Christ. Focus on Christ. I know for me, when I'm unjustly angry or when I'm expressing my anger in a hurtful rather than helpful way, it's because I'm focusing on David. I'm not focusing on Jesus. When I take my eyes off Jesus, I fall into the trap of thinking that life is all about me. That the universe revolves around David Lambert. And when things don't go my way, I fall prey to three dangerous words. That's not fair. That's not fair is used to justify a lot of selfishness and a lot of bad attitudes. You feel unappreciated. Okay. Ignored. Maybe even attacked. It makes you mad. You know what? God never promised us that life would be fair, did He? God never designed this world to satisfy our every whim. I mean, if He did, I could eat donuts all day and not gain a pound, right? I mean, that would be awesome. Donuts at every meal. But that's not the way the world works, sadly. Thinking that life should be fair is really just a way of saying that you demand the world meet your every whim and your every need. And when it inevitably doesn't, you get frustrated. As if you've been offended. It's been an affront to you. But you know, as Christians, we know the world doesn't revolve around us. Everything is about and for Jesus. He's at the center of it all, not you and me. It's His kingdom come, not mine. It's His will be done, not mine. So when I focus on Jesus, I'm turning to Him for my identity. I'm turning to Him for fulfillment. It's what the author of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now, we don't know exactly what that sin is, but for some of us, it's anger. For some of us, it's that selfishness that wants to say life's not fair. He says, throw off that sin. All that does is trip you up. All it's doing is slowing you down in the race. And instead, he says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him 
endured the cross, scorning its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, you want to talk about life not being fair? The sinless Son of God, creator of the universe, hung on a cross naked and bore your sin and shame on Himself. That's not fair. And if Jesus can do that with joy, if He can do that scorning the shame of it, then certainly you and I can endure somebody getting our parking spot at Walmart. Or somebody not immediately texting us back and waiting an hour. Oh, the inhumanity. The second thing we have to do is find the right words. See, we get ourselves into so much trouble because we're using the world's strategies and the world's vocabulary to deal with our anger. For example, moms and dads, if your child does something wrong, maybe something that embarrasses you, makes you look bad, maybe something that's going to cost you money to fix, you might feel the urge to make them pay for the grief that you're going to suffer. Guess what? That's not discipline. That's revenge. Making someone else pay for the grief you're going to suffer is revenge. Perhaps you withhold affection or forgiveness or maybe you use the incident as ammunition down the road and you throw it back in their face. But listen to what Romans 12, 17-21 says. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, we can discipline, and we should discipline. And sometimes it requires tough love. Sometimes you have to do difficult things you don't want to do because you love somebody. You love that child that's wayward, that's rebellious. That's not what this is talking about. Again, you have to go back and evaluate your motives. Are you acting this way because it's going to make you feel better? Because you're embarrassed? Because you want to make them pay for what you're suffering? That's where it gets into sin. What we say and how we say it are the most common ways that we can inflict maximum damage on somebody. You don't have to use your hands to beat someone down, to crush their spirit. And even if that's not your intent, if you're not careful with your words, you can really end up causing more harm than good. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your conversation be always full of grace. Always. Seasoned with salt so that you know how to answer everyone. You know, food, let's take grits, for example. It doesn't have salt in it. Is that good? No. It's still grits. But it has to have that salt. And what Paul is saying is that sometimes it's not what you say, it's not the grits, it's how you say it. Have you seasoned it with grace? It's what you season your conversation with that makes the difference. I read a great article this past week about knowing how to answer your family, how to season your conversations with grace. They gave some great tips on finding and using the right words. For example, using the word but can complicate an already tense conversation. And the point the author makes is that when you say but, you are negating everything you just said, right? That's what the word but does as a contraction. It negates everything that was just said. That can cause confusion and hurt when you tell someone, I love you, but... Okay, you love me, but you really don't. Or if you say, I'm sorry, but... 
You're saying, I'm sorry, but not really. So instead, the article recommends using the phrase, and I think this is brilliant, using the phrase, at the same time. Instead of but, you say at the same time. Because when you say at the same time, you're validating both what's come before and what's come after as being equally valid. That both of these things can be held at the same time. So for example, you would say, I love you, at the same time, I can't let you hurt other people. Both of those statements are true. Or you might say, I'm sorry that you're upset. At the same time, running away isn't safe. Both of those are the same. Just changing one little word to that phrase can do a lot to season that conversation with grace, to put a little bit of salt in it and make it easier to go down. That's the point. Being intentional, prayerful, and patient can help us to mean what we say and say what we mean. It can help us avoid escalating an argument or hurting those that we love. It can help us find solutions to problems rather than just making ourselves feel better about them. Number three, we need to frame a plan of action. See, anger doesn't have to be reactionary. We don't have to see ourselves as victims of the circumstances. Especially in family situations, I bet you could sit down right now and list some ways that your spouse or your children or your siblings or maybe even your parents are going to make you mad in the next month. Bet you can do it. I know I could give you a list right now of the ways I will probably make Julia mad at me in the month to come when I don't put dishes in the dishwasher and I leave them stacked in the sink. You know, when I watch the TV too loud or I'll leave my shoes in the middle of the living room. Guys, I know you've got the same list running through your mind right now. We, we tend to get upset at the same things, don't we? I mean, it's no surprise most of the time when we do something to make somebody angry. We really shouldn't be surprised that that made them angry. And since we know what we do that makes other people mad, why not be proactive? Why not be intentional about how to handle the next disagreement? Sit down as a family. Discuss the ways that you can honor each other by brothers and sisters not barging into each other's rooms without knocking. By respecting each other's stuff and asking before you take and putting it back where it goes. But by helping each other with chores. Develop a family plan for managing a household schedule so that everybody knows where they're supposed to be and when, so you don't get mad when somebody's later or forgets. Make expectations clear. We can head off so much anger and frustration by just being intentional and clear. And then when you do find yourselves angry, set out some ground rules for how you as a family are going to argue and fight fair and forgive and express that anger. Proverbs chapter 16 says, To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer for the tongue. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and He will establish your plans. God wants to help you develop a plan for what to say and what to do when you become angry. Wise families are proactive families. They're intentional families. And the last thing we need to do with our anger is forgive emotional debt. Keep short accounts. Keep short accounts with people. You'll avoid a lot of frustration. But if you allow emotional debt to build up, the person who's going to pay the highest price is you, not the person you're angry with. And the longer we allow bitterness to burrow deep into our souls, guess what? The more difficult and costly it is to remove. 
When you forgive someone, it means that you cover your debt. It means that you're not going to make them pay for making you angry. You assume the payment. You tell them it's forgiven. You no longer owe me anything. Now, it's our natural inclination to want to get revenge, to make them pay for their offense against us. But when we do that, when we refuse to forgive, we're the one that pays the higher price. It cuts us off from the riches of Christ. It ruins our relationship. It comes between us and God. Listen, if my hands are full of bitterness and unforgiveness, they're not open to receive the blessings that God wants to give me. That's why Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgive. Now, before I conclude, I just want to say real quick that that Faith at Home Center out there has got some great resources on this topic. There's a uh, parent report card that you can give to your child to help you have an honest conversation with them about how they feel. Don't let them bottle up anger and frustration. Have a conversation with them about your relationship. Uh, there's a, a, a suggestion for when you have meals to have sort of a highs and lows. We, at our house, we call them pals and wows. Tell us one wow from your day, something good, and tell us one pow from your day. Kind of that, that sucker punch to the gut, you know, something that didn't go well. Just a way to, again, help them express maybe what made them angry or frustrated that day. And then there's a piece on disciplining your children. The moms and dads can give you proactive, positive, healthy ways that you can discipline your kids. So I invite you again to stop by that center and pick up some of those resources. As I've said this morning, y'all, Jesus took upon Himself the debt of sin that you and I accrued. He paid that price so that we could be made right with God. Jesus was perfect. We are not. He paid the price that we owe for our sins. We have accrued our own debts. Now, if Jesus Christ, who was sinless, could pay that high price to forgive us, how much more should we forgive one another? This morning, have you experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? Do you know Him as your Lord and Savior? If not, as we sing in just a second, I invite you to come so that you can have your sins washed away, so that you can be given a fresh start by Jesus Christ. He wants to do that for you this morning. Maybe someone here in this room, you've got somebody you need to go and forgive. Maybe you've got somebody you need to ask for forgiveness from. I want to invite you this morning to come and get right with God, but then I'm also invite you to go and get right with someone else.